But we're in the second of uh, this series of the mystery of godliness from 1 Timothy 3.16. And we're up to the second term, the second phrase in this confession. Uh, He was vindicated by the Spirit. Or uh, your Bible version might actually render that he was justified by the Spirit. In uh, 1995, there was a a popular worship song being sung uh, in churches uh, at the time that Hillsong music was was, uh, growing and becoming popular. The song was This Kingdom by Jeff Bullock and there was some controversy over it for some people though because of those words, now glorified, now justified, his kingdom comes. Some people objected to that line because they said, hang on, Jesus wasn't a sinner who needed to be justified like us. Some people changed the words to now testified. Well, not only does that not quite work grammatically, but it ignores the fact that Jeff Bullock was actually quoting directly from this verse. The word that the version we use that ESV translated as vindicated is exactly the same word that in other places in the Bible is translated as justified, exactly the same. So we can fall into the trap of assigning very narrow definitions to words in the Bible and assume that wherever it appears it means exactly the same thing. We know from English, don't we, that um, most words can have variations of meaning depending on the context in which you use them. And we always need to understand the context in which the word's used if we, to get the full sense of what it's meaning. And the same is true in the Bible, written in human language. So we shouldn't assume that wherever a word appears in the Bible, it has exactly, precisely the same nuance or meaning every single place in which it appears. So when Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, uses exactly the same word as 1 Timothy 3.16, but with a different emphasis. When applied to us sinners... The emphasis is on the change that has taken place for us in our status before God, from a sinner under wrath to a child under his favour, who's accepted by him. Then when James uses exactly the same word, James 2, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. He's not contradicting Paul. He's using the word in a different context. He's talking about how our works are evidence that our profession of faith isn't empty. A faith that's living will be shown to be true, justified or vindicated by the fruit in my life. So he says in that same chapter, I will show you my faith by my works. The core meaning of this word, justify, 
is the idea of declaring someone, someone or something to be righteous. It's not just that a person is righteous, it is made known, it is declared that they are. As we saw last week, our passage is a confession, it's a statement, an open statement of something that's true. Whether it's true that we confess our sins or whether it's true the great doctrines of the mystery of godliness that have been revealed to us. It's a declaration of truth. So this word justify or vindicate is about God stating, making known a person's true status before him. But before we look at how this word is used in this passage, it's important for us to make sure we understand what's meant when that word is used of us. Because I think there are a couple of wrong ways we might think about justification, our justification. One is that we kind of think maybe that God's telling a white lie about us. We're really sinners but God pretends we're not. I once saw this portrayed in a cartoon. I've been scouring the internet to find it but it's not there. It was a picture of a man doing sinful things which in this context was smoking and drinking but he was hiding behind a cardboard cutout of Jesus holding it up between him and God. So we might say something like, when God looks at me, he doesn't see me anymore. He sees Jesus. I'm hiding behind Jesus. Another wrong way of thinking about justification is that God has changed his view of sin. That he's not taking it as seriously as he did in the past. In the Old Testament, We might think God seems very harsh. He punishes people with plagues and earthquakes and famines. But now in the New Testament, a nice Jesus has calmed him down and has talked him into being a bit more gracious about sin. Well, both of these caricatures are wrong because neither of them are about God speaking the truth. Justification as we see in the word itself, flows from God's justice. So he doesn't turn off his justice, his his righteous anger at sin and evil in order to do the work of justification. He hasn't downgraded his view of sin. He's not less angry at sin now than he was when the flood was sent to wipe out all of humanity. And he's not pretending, he's not telling white lies when he declares us to be justified, righteous. He's speaking the truth. He's declaring things as they actually are. See, he declares you to be righteous because in Christ he has made you righteous. He's taken you from where you were under his wrath. He has removed the guilt and the shame of your sin 
and he's put you in a place now where you are under his favour, under his grace. You're not a secret sinner hiding behind a cardboard cutout of Jesus. When he looks at you, he sees you as you truly are as a recipient of the perfect righteousness of Christ. So your righteousness in Christ is yours. Not because you created it or earned it, but because it has been given to you as a gift. Something that's a gift is truly yours. It's not temporary, it's not alone. It came to you from outside of yourself, but now that you have it, it belongs to you. So justification is God speaking the truth about you as you are in Christ. And here in 1 Timothy, the word means that God is speaking the truth about Christ as he is in himself. He is declared to be the righteous one in capital letters. It's not that he's become righteous as is the case with us but he has always been righteous. He has always been the beloved son in whom the father takes great delight. Now the point of this term then vindicated by the spirit in the context of this confession is that Jesus has been made known to us as the righteous one. The spirit, the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to see him for who he truly is. So we're going to take a a whirlwind journey through Jesus' life and ministry to see how at critical points the Holy Spirit is at work making the identity of Jesus clear. Our first reading this morning from Matthew chapter 1 showed the Spirit at work in the conception of Jesus. Twice the Holy Spirit's mentioned. She was found to be with child by the Holy, from the Holy Spirit and Joseph was told uh, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now Joseph initially thought Mary had become pregnant to another man and so that's why he resolved to divorce her quietly so that, as the law required, she could then go and marry this other man without scandal. But then he's told that he should take Mary as his wife because the pregnancy is not the result of adultery but the work of the Spirit. See that the point here isn't just that the conception of Jesus is miraculous, that it shows him to be both human and divine, manifested in the flesh, but it's also about his identity as the Saviour. He is to be given the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His miraculous conception and birth by the Holy Spirit points to his identity as the Saviour. Now, not long after this, Mary visited Elizabeth, who was also pregnant in a miraculous way. 
uh, she was elderly and had been unable to have children. So she's a bit like a New Testament Sarah in that sense. As soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child, John the Baptist, leapt in her womb and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She knew through the power of the Holy Spirit, not only that Mary was pregnant, but with whom she was pregnant, my Lord. The Holy Spirit had declared the baby's identity. After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple to be dedicated and there they encountered the prophet Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. That says he was a prophet. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon would have seen hundreds if not thousands of children being brought to the temple for dedication. And Jesus would have looked no different to any of those children. There wasn't a special glow about him. It was the Holy Spirit who showed him that this child is the Lord's Christ. He was told he wouldn't see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ and he saw him. We next see the Spirit mentioned at Jesus' baptism 30 years later. So apart from the birth narratives and then one incident when Jesus was 12 and he was in the temple talking with the teachers, we know nothing about his childhood and nothing about his young adulthood until at around age 30 his identity would be revealed, not anymore just to a few people in secret but in a public way to everyone. So John 1.29 says the next day he, John the Baptist, this is the second time he's seen Jesus, he met him when they were babies in the womb, now he sees him as an adult. He saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptising with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness 
that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist's job was to prepare the way for Jesus by bearing witness to his identity as the Lamb of God and as the Son of God. But he's not bearing witness out of himself. See how he's simply pointing to the witness of the Holy Spirit that he's giving by descending on Jesus as a dove and remaining on him. So the Spirit here is the one identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Saviour, and as the Son of God, the Messiah, and he also shows what Jesus will do in those roles. He will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Now what happens next might be a bit of a shock to us. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See how it wasn't the devil who dragged him into the wilderness to tempt him, He was led there by the Spirit. He was full of the Spirit as he was being tempted. Do you know the reason that we can pray, lead us not into temptation, isn't because God isn't able to lead us into temptation, but because Jesus on our behalf was led into temptation by the Holy Spirit and in the power of the Spirit he stood firm. He didn't give in, unlike Adam in Eden when he was tempted with the food on the tree or the Israelites in the wilderness when they complained about the lack of food. Here's Jesus in the wilderness being tempted with food And he stands firm. The devil did the tempting. It wasn't God who tempted him. But it was the Lord who put Adam and put Israel and put Jesus himself in that place where the temptation occurred. Because Jesus succeeded where Adam failed and where Israel failed, we can have confidence that even when we are allowed by God at times to face temptation, he won't abandon us in that place. As he has promised, he will always provide a way through and a way out. See, the first thing, though, that the devil attacks, Jesus' identity, if you are the Son of God. Jesus had gone from the heights of hearing the Father's voice thunder from heaven and from seeing the Holy Spirit descend visibly on him, both declaring him to be the Son of God, to this very depths of hunger and thirst and isolation and this full frontal attack from the devil. We need to see as we did last week, the devil here is not challenging Jesus' divinity. 
This title, Son of God, is just that, it's a title. It's not a description of his nature. The kings in the Old Testament were symbolically called sons of God because they ruled with God's delegated authority. Here we see Jesus who is literally the Son of God. He is God the Son. But he's also the Son of God in his identity as the Messiah, as the human king who will rule God's people. That's why his first rebuttal to the devil isn't, you can't tempt me, I'm God. No, it's man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He's facing this temptation as the last Adam on our behalf. Which is why, as I said, because he overcame as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit, we too are called overcomers as we are united to him through the work of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was upon Jesus throughout this time of temptation and it was then the Spirit who empowered him and launched him into his public ministry. Luke chapter 4, Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as, he, as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then we're told that he sat down and said, this scripture has been fulfilled today in your presence. One uh, commentator on this passage says, Jesus returns from the temptation in the wilderness, not as a limping survivor, but in the power of the Spirit, as the righteous one vindicated by God, Fidelity to the divine will does not leave one depleted and exhausted, but spiritually empowered. That's Jesus' experience on our behalf. Now, from this point on, through the Gospels, the Holy Spirit doesn't get many direct mentions. But it's implied from this passage that everything Jesus does in his ministry as the one promised in Isaiah, he does in the power of the Holy Spirit. As I said last week, he's not allowing his divine nature to overshadow or overcome his human nature. He does all that he does both as God the Son and in the flesh, as a spirit-filled man. Each time he performed a miracle, It was a sign pointing to that identity, his identity as the Messiah. There is, however, one more reference to the Holy Spirit that we need to look at. No doubt you've heard of the unforgivable sin 
the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When the scribes and Pharisees were looking at these signs that Jesus was doing that pointed to his identity, they were refusing to recognise who he was and instead they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus' response is, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Why such a severe penalty for this sin? Well, because the Holy Spirit is testifying to the identity of Jesus. So to speak against the Holy Spirit is to reject all that he is revealing about Jesus. It's to reject ultimately what Jesus came to bring, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can't be forgiven if we reject the only means of forgiveness. We can't be forgiven if we reject the ultimate goal of that forgiveness, which is to be a child of God who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Hell is for people who refuse to repent of this one sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is manifested in the flesh according and in every aspect of his life and ministry, so too he is vindicated by the Spirit in every aspect of his life and ministry. But it doesn't just stop there. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus was filled with the Spirit, the eternal Spirit, when he gave himself as an offering to the Father at the cross. All three members of the Trinity were involved in accomplishing our salvation. The Son offered himself in the power of the Spirit to the Father. That's what happened at the cross. But not just the cross, the resurrection. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See the parallel there with our first two lines? Put to death in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh that he might die at the cross, but made alive, vindicated in or by the spirit. So the spirit was at work bringing Jesus back from the dead. It wasn't just the father who raised Jesus, it was the spirit as well. The other reference to the Holy Spirit and Jesus' resurrection was in the the second reading we heard this morning. Remember Paul described Jesus 
as God's son who was descended from David according to the flesh, manifested in the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Holy Spirit didn't just restore Jesus' life and breath so that he who was truly dead is now truly alive. That happened, but it wasn't just that. By the resurrection, the Spirit is declaring Jesus' identity to us. The resurrection isn't just a dead man coming to life. It is this man being raised up and seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's this man being given a kingdom and power and authority to rule over the nations with an iron scepter. And it's from this place of power and authority that Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, will also speak and bring about our resurrection. And this Jesus, who has received the gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father, pours out the Spirit upon us. Can you remember one of the two great cries that the Holy Spirit elicits from us as he fills us and dwells in us? Jesus is Lord. We declare, we confess who Jesus is as Lord because the Spirit has revealed him to us. And we cry, Abba, Father. Because knowing Jesus' identity as the risen Lord and Saviour means that we've also come to know our identity in him as children of God. This leads us into a couple of very practical implications for this truth that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. We can come to know all about Jesus. We can know everything the Bible tells us about him But that knowledge will only become one of true faith as the Holy Spirit reveals not just facts about him but his identity as our Lord and Saviour. I think I've shared this story before but last year uh, I and uh, an ES student leader had the privilege of reading through Mark's Gospel with an international student who wanted to learn more about Christianity. Uh, it took about six months for us to, to do that, week, week by week, reading the Gospel, answering his questions. By the end of the time, he could articulate what the Bible says about Jesus. He could even explain the Gospel to us. He acknowledged that Jesus and the Gospel and the Christian faith were good and to be admired but he also still said he didn't believe in God. So what had we done wrong? Was there more that we should have done to make him believe these things he was reading? Well they're the the wrong questions to ask. This man had heard the word of God, he'd seen Jesus presented to him but the Holy Spirit in his sovereign wisdom had not yet opened his heart to enable him to trust in Jesus. So we keep praying that in his time the Spirit will do that work 
in Hua's heart and bring him to know him personally. Vindicated by the Spirit also helps us in a very practical way as we, from time to time, need to ask the question, is what I'm seeing or experiencing something from the Holy Spirit or something from somewhere or someone else? That's what 1 Corinthians 12 calls the ability to distinguish between spirits. And 1 John 4 means by do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. We mustn't automatically assume that something that is claimed to be or might appear at first glance to be the work of the Holy Spirit actually is the Holy Spirit. There are other spiritual powers at work in this world who set out to lead people astray from a pure devotion to Christ and they do it by mimicking the works of God. There are also powers at work within us because of our ongoing sinful nature, our own desires, our own emotions, our own psychological tendencies that will fool us into thinking that something we're experiencing is a clear evidence of the Holy Spirit when it's actually not. Both of the passages that I mentioned, including this one, about discerning between the Holy Spirit and other spirits, they also contain the standard or the measuring stick for discernment. How do we judge whether this thing, this experience this person, this phenomenon is the work of the Holy Spirit. And the standard is vindication of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That's the primary work the Spirit does in the world. All of the work that the Spirit does points us to Jesus. And more than that, all of his work is with the aim of honouring Jesus, to show him to be the glorious Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. There's the standard. How do you discern between the spirits? Is that spirit pointing you to Jesus as Lord? That's the Holy Spirit. If it's not, it's another spirit. 1 John 4 goes on to say, By this you know know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. We see here the battle... I mentioned last week that the early Christians were facing not so much opposition to Jesus' divinity but to his humanity. The Holy Spirit vindicates Jesus by affirming that he is God manifested in the flesh. And the Spirit doesn't just mention Jesus. He reveals him in his fullness and he leads us into humble, repentant, and joyful worship 
of Jesus. One of the biggest churches in America has a weekly attendance of 45,000 people. Their pastor's sermons are in the top five of the most listened to religious podcasts, not just Christian podcasts, religious podcasts. Now many, although not all, of his sermons mention Jesus. And he always leads his listeners at the end of his sermon in a prayer to make Jesus Lord of your life. Are those things enough to say that the Holy Spirit is at work? A big church, 45,000 people, worldwide popularity, lots of people listen, and a message about Jesus? Well, none of those things in and of themselves are evidence either for or against the working of the Holy Spirit. Not even the fact that a message mentions Jesus. The question is, how is Jesus portrayed? Is he spoken of as a crucified and risen Son of God who reigns over sin and death and the devil, who's coming again as the judge of the whole earth, who calls us to repent and believe and to forsake everything in this world and take up our cross and follow him. A sermon that speaks of Jesus as one among many Bible heroes or as a model for how to be blessed and then ends just with a little four-line prayer to invite him into your life, that presents a vision of Jesus who just exists as a means to me getting what I want to be blessed by God. So while this big church in America has a very basic but nonetheless orthodox statement of faith, because say technically they believe the right things about Jesus, they actually present a different version of Jesus than what the Holy Spirit presents. Now, does that mean that no one who goes to that church is a Christian or that the Holy Spirit isn't at work in some way in their lives? We can't say that. We're not God. We don't know people's hearts. But I would say that the work of the Spirit isn't through this church. It's sometimes despite it and maybe as people themselves read their Bibles and receive Christ-centred preaching and teaching from other places. He's even able to use that which is faulty and insufficient and inadequate in methodology and motive. But we should never expect him to use insufficient or faulty preaching about Jesus to produce true Holy Holy Spirit-inspired faith. Because knowing... Well, there's a picture of the church. It's in the wrong place in the service order. Knowing the Holy Spirit's work in our lives doesn't come from focusing on the Holy Spirit. It comes from focusing on the one whom the Spirit himself focuses on the Lord Jesus. So look 
to him alone, look to Jesus alone. If you've never trusted in Jesus before, you don't need to recite a four-line prayer. Just look to Jesus and the Holy Spirit will enable you to see his beauty and his glory and to come to him and to worship him.